Episode 55, Patrick and Cyprian speak with Dr. Vincent Burke, Chief Strategist at Quantum Exchange. The team discuss quantum safe encryption, improvements to security with quantum computing, hybrid problem solving, and risk management. Welcome to Entangled Things, your quantum computing podcast, hosted by Patrick and Cyprian. Hey, Cyprian, how are you doing today? Hey, Patrick, I'm doing good and looking forward for another great episode of Entangled Things. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Uh, We're joined by Vincent. Vincent, do you mind telling our audience about yourself, please? Yeah, absolutely. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Um, My name is Vince Burke. Um, I'm uh, the chief strategist at a a quantum safe encryption company called Quantum Exchange. And, uh, well, I've got a a PhD in machine learning and and, uh, as, as many... Many of us in the early days of machine learning did went into cybersecurity instead, right? This was a time that machine learning was not very hot at all. Um, I spent some time as the CEO of a few uh, startups in cybersecurity space, but now I've sort of turned hobby um, into work by going into the quantum safe encryption space. So, yeah, that's a few words on me. I, I think that's the, the the technical version of a triple threat. Nowadays, the things that scare people most are cyber. AI and quantum, and uh, and and we're kind of in that triangle of doom and, and peril right now. Um, but but I think we're going to talk a lot more about uh, the security side, though. I'm, uh, you two are free to you and Cyprian are free to jump into the AI and machine learning aspects. But um, your perspective is pretty much very similar to my perspective, which is that this um, this coming transition from the current quantum, we'll call them quantum unsafe uh, encryption. Uh, to quantum safe encryption and quantum based encryption is going to be bumpy and it's not going to be like flick a switch and, you know, substitute a library and, and go. Um, you know, you're at the forefront of this. Your company actually is is trying to solve this problem, is it not? Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the realization there and, and it's actually, you know, it's an interesting place for us to start this discussion. Um, you know, I, I, I actually have my own uh, podcast called Crypto Convos and I had Admiral Mike cool. Rogers who ran the NSA for years as my guest not long ago. And he pointed out, because I, you know, I had a similar discussion with him and I po- pointed out to him, is like, look, I think you were the head of the NSA when Heartbleed, right? The vulnerability in, in SSL came out and he said, oh yeah. And, and I said, well, how did that go? And his answer was, well, you know, it took us even months to figure out what the scope of the problem was. So like how, you know, how far and wide this was, this tube where we even had to start looking and, and, you know, and, and he's like, I can't even say how long it took us to, to work through it and mitigate it. Right. And I think that right. the point Patrick, that you're, that you're hinting at here is that look, right. We're going to have to transition away from, you know, or do something. Right. And we'll talk about all of that. We have to do something. And that transition is going to be, you know, we haven't done anything different between Heartbleed and today in the world of cryptography mm-hmm. that is going to give us the impression that this is going to go any easier than when it went back, you know, in the days of Heartbleed, right? And that's really what we're what we're looking at and why this, this problem is so daunting for people. Well, and, and the, you just pointed on something very critical is there really hasn't been a lot of change and tumult in the encryption world. And so people think of encryption as something you change every 20 years and then it's fine for 20 years. And, and that's not a guarantee. We, it's just been a very quiet time for encryption. It's been a relatively quiet time, I think. And I don't think that's going to be the norm. Well, I think, I mean, if you look at, 
at encryption standards and encryption technologies over the years, people seem to think that that it's been steady, right? And, and okay, you know, fair enough. Like Diffie Hellman and RSA, as algorithms uh, go, have been have been pretty dependable. But like, remember Triple Des, uh, remember MD5, mm-hmm. right? Like, there's parts and pieces of our crypto ecosystem that have well, that have weathered away, right? That had to be replaced. Yeah. And, and that process has been, um, it has been somewhat gentle, right? But uh, the reality I think is, is that most organizations don't have much of a handle on what kind of cryptography is used on their network and whether or not that meets a minimum standard or whether or not that has, you know, is strong enough of an eavesdropper truly wanted to brute force it. I mean, just look at the size of RSA keys that we've been using, right? Like I remember the days that a 512 RSA key was just fine. And right now, we do yeah. 2048 bits, and that's seen as the minimum standard. So, so cryptography kind of has evolved, right? This, it, it's a little right. bit of a false sense of security that we're having around that, I think. Yeah, but it's been able to evolve by extending the keys or using other things that are well established. And we're, we're even if it stabilizes in 10 years, it's going to be a long road, as you've said. Um, and, and a lot of people aren't going down that road yet. They're waiting. And, and being a late adopter in this is, is very risky. Well, and it is risky because of exactly the point we were making. The the required time and effort in changing around your cryptographic algorithms, right? Not just your, you know, this is not a key we're 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 taking. And key management by itself is an entire industry because it's already hard. Um, mm-hmm. The effort required for this is so substantial that waiting around is not, um, you know, is is not advisable. But there is a certain level of thinking. And I think that's where the misguidedness comes from. There's a certain level of thinking that says, well, okay, RSA needs to be replaced one day. There will be a new algorithm. That algorithm is going to be fantastic. Then all the vendors will compile that algorithm right into their products, and then we'll be good again for 40 years. And what I'm saying is, is that that is not what's going to happen. I think that change is going to be ever constant also in the, in the crypto world. But I, I think there's also another interesting uh... Uh, play here, um, if we look through the lenses of what uh, a powerful enough quantum computer will be able to do, is that it's not that we have a time window that, okay, we don't have yet the quantum computer, so we're safe, because we already know that storing encrypted information just to have it uh, for the purpose of decrypting it maybe 10 years from now and 15 years from now extracting whatever value is left in there, right? That's a real threat as well. Yeah, because encryption, a lot of people don't realize encryption has different expiration dates. If I'm firing artillery rounds, I only need those coordinates to be secret for about a minute. But if I'm if I'm mining lithium, I need that to be secret for decades, potentially, if, or uranium, things like that. So that's that's the reason I think that people are starting to wake up, at least the defense sector, people from the NSA, they're getting religion about this. None of us really know when um, the quantum, when RSA 2048 will be toast. But I'm betting on closer to the end of this decade than further from the end of this decade. And I know that's an aggressive timetable, but it's it's hard to, it's hard to really like something that's a, a survival-based decision. It's hard to be... Um, lackadaisical about it well let's, let's, what, what do you think let's talk about that that decrypt uh, store now decrypt later 
that you're okay. that you're referring to, right? So this is an this is an activity that's been uh, conducted for uh, for decades, in fact, right? And that's uh, um, and people put that in the context of the quantum computer, but um, I you know I happen to have a friend who who worked on one of those um, those efforts at some point in his career, and um, and I you know when I went into quantum, I was like, hey, you know, this is really scary because you know we're we're storing these you know, this day, they're storing our data. And at some point the quantum computer is going to break it. And he tells me, it's like, oh, Vince, I would love to have a quantum computer. It'd be really helping me. But in reality is, is we're able to decrypt the vast majority of data that we capture anyway. I was like, well, hang on a second. Like how, you know, how do you do that? He's like, well, I'm not <laughs> exactly going to tell you, but, um, but think about this. Like we stumble upon things that people leave behind. Like sometimes we find certificates lying around. And sometimes we yep. brute force a password. Sometimes we brute force a certificate. Sometimes yeah. we know about bugs on systems, right? Like we know about bugs in cryptography libraries. I mean, just the other day we had seven seven bug fixes in the Open SSL library. Just the other day, right? Earlier last year we had the the Java 15 ECDSA bug, like handed a complete zero byte certificate and it thinks you are whomever you claim you are, right? Like it is yeah. bugs in software happen. And his point was, is like, you know, quantum computers are going to help us, but it's not going to actually change our world very much. If we need to get your data decrypted, we'll probably, we'll probably get lucky in some way, right? So it's happening today. Yeah. If we, if we wait long enough, that, like you mentioned, uh, five five twelve encryption or, or triple DES. There's stuff that was encrypted 20 years ago that used triple desk. And if you stay, saved it and stored it, you can probably break it now. And this is exactly That's right. It, it's interesting perspective. Yeah. And but, but the, just, just think about, um, just think about you, you capturing data right now. And that data came from a, from a system that was encrypted by the state department. Yeah. You, you have that data for a few months, but then the state department is, recycling laptops and the drives are not properly yeah. cleaned and one finds the certificate, right? Well, yeah, match yeah. that stuff it's, up and you can decrypt now. Excuse me a minute. I'm going to go delete all my data. Give me a you minute. better. Uh. <laughs> Don't store it in the cloud neither. <laughs> oh man. So, uh, but what's interesting is you, what you point out is clearly makes sense, but the fact of the quantum threat is driving a lot of funding and it's yeah. driving a lot of research in the quantum space. We did a show recently, I don't know if it's aired yet by the time this comes out, about um, whether or not this is a hype bubble or not. So there's a, a, a scientist named Sabina Hassenfelder who does physics lectures on YouTube, very, very interesting person, very uh, knowledgeable, but she expressed doubt that um, quantum would turn into anything and that it was just all hype and that it would there'd be a winter, quantum winter coming. And we posited that it wouldn't because I think there's another 10 years of government-level funding DARPA just approached Microsoft, for example, to work with them because they see them as a potential disruptor in the space. Um, and so there's a lot of government money from all over the world. We've talked to Finland, uh, the, com uh, the government of Finland, about their five qubit uh, computer back last year. Um, I think that's going to sustain it as well as the enterprise side of using Kubos to do optimization calculations with D-Wave and all the other things that seem to be coming out on a regular basis. Um, what's your position on on the hype? Do you think that the the encryption angle is going to keep the industry alive long enough for it to 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 take? You know, I I do have a take on that, and and um, 
uh, I want to refer back to something that Peter Shore said on a podcast that a friend of mine was recording, Sebastian Hassinger was recording. Um, and Peter Shore said that um, he wasn't so sure the quantum computer was a mode of computation that nature would allow. However, he was absolutely certain that there were more efficient modes of computation available than the conventional binary computer. Now, let's take a look at what he said here, right? Like he was basically saying, he's like, well, I don't know, there seems to be a lot of trouble and struggles in getting the quantum computer to scale, right? Like there was no, you know, when we built a transistor, there was an evident way of thinking about it, how we could scale that. And there were some problems like thermal dissipation, but we know some material sciences, there was a lot of you know, ways to advance that the quantum computer. It seems to be that, you know, either um, coherence time seems to degrade rapidly or your ability to entangle a lot of qubits seems to degrade uh, rapidly, right? So there seems to mm. be like some sort of asymptote there. But we've also seen that there is some level of, well, supremacy right there, right? There is a way to do better. And I, I, I agree with that. And I think that the quantum computer research that has been driven has done several things. Well, first of all, it has actually advanced that mode of computation. It was the quantum computer, but it has also unlocked the whole number of different compute technologies that were not available before, right? Like a quantum computer isn't just a Josephson junction, right? Like a quantum computer, right, we see the spintronics, the, the, the um, technology there. But that is the hardware upon which we're building a different type of computer. There is also something happening in the software world, right? The mm -hmm. people that build quantum algorithms, right? So, so on the one hand, we may say, right, the quantum computer per se, as we're building them today, may not become as scaled and powerful as we would like, but there are other types of computer machines that we are building that may, for some problems, actually do really, really well and much better than the conventional oh, binary in, computer. In, in classical computing, um, transistors weren't the first approach. There was the mechanical computers. There were the vacuum tubes. Maybe we're in one of those phases and we're going to get to a point where it's high temperature. It's, it's, you know, easily scalable. Um, I, we're very interested in the Microsoft side of things because, um, we've worked with Microsoft in various forms. Um, Cyprian's a, a part of their MVP program for quantum computing. And, um, I'm really interested in whether they can disrupt things just the way DARPA is because their approach is very low on errors. And if it works, it's very early stages, they could easily have a million qubits. Now, whether they can entangle them, that's the other question. But I think we're going to be living in interesting times. And I think that's a Chinese curse. May you live in interesting <laughs> times. Well, stability um, certainly is something that people seem to crave in the, in the, in the world, right? Because it gives predictability and humans like yeah. to predict. So. Uh, interesting stuff. Cyprian, what were you saying? Now, I was, uh, one of the things that, that is kind of also uh, on, on my mind is we always discuss about this is how quantum will potentially disrupt security in this way and that way and that way. I think it's very interesting also to cover the other side of the coin in terms of how will quantum help improve uh, security? Because I believe there are quite a few modalities, right, where... Um, uh, quantum could could yield significant improvements, like for example the quantum key exchange, mm -hmm. uh, which is which is one of the one of the promising things. And then the the very nature of quantum communication, where if you're eavesdropping, right, people will know because that's how quantum works, right? It will collapse, and then it it will be obvious that that someone was was looking at that. So, Vince, I I, I would really like to see to to get some of your perspective also on okay. 
we know about uh, Shore and about kind of breaking the, the some of the encryption algorithms, but which are the positives of, of this potential quantum revolution? Like, like what do we expect in terms of improvements or even a, like a change of paradigm? Because I think there, there are a few areas where we could even expect a change of paradigm in security because of some quantum technologies. I think, well, no, this is, this is absolutely true. And, and we've seen this, of course, um, you know, the, the pharmaceuticals, we've seen this in material sciences, the modeling of, right, there's a lot of promise in the quantum computer or a highly skilled um, uh, a probabilistic. Thing. And I think that's, you know, I'll take your point even further by saying this, right? So the, one of the things that, that quantum computers have done is it has driven a new way of thinking about building computer programs or uh, computer algorithms, if you will, right? So the way we write, you know, the way that, for instance, Peter Shor's algorithm works um, is a, a probabilistic way where you take effectively all possible solutions and you run an algorithm on that. And then the more likely solutions are, are starting to have, you know, modes, uh, 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 spikes in the graph, right? So um, this is a, a very new way of thinking. It's not a heuristic way of thinking. This is not a regression that we're computing, right? So the 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 new way of thinking about algorithms, and, and Cyprian, I'm going to get back to answer your question more precisely in a minute, but I think that, um, you know, I'm starting on this base, this foundation that we are, as humans, evolving the way we're thinking about writing computer programs. We're no longer thinking about it in terms of a you know, uh, uh, an iterative set of instructions that become uh, um, executed, right? We're thinking about it as like, here's the entire solution set. How can we make some things more or less likely? Now, this is a new new way of thinking that also works on conventional computers, right? It's like a rainbow table approach. Yeah. You, all the solutions are laid out in front of you and you just pick the right one. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. And so this, this new way of thinking opens up... Um, uh, which is why it's also so interesting for the machine learning people, right? Like, because all of a sudden, you know, we, we can have, um, you know, new ways of representing um, uh, a very, very complex uh, constructs that uh, are vital for uh, AI and ML to, to fix their optimization problem. I think that in that sense, it's an optimization problem, which is actually very interesting because now take that back to traditional cybersecurity well, that's also a very much a optimization problem. And, and the example I'll give you back in the back in the flow track days, like one of the things we used to do is, is help people set up cyber hunt capabilities. So when cyber hunting was new and the whole concept behind cyber hunting was, right, you start out without any evidence, right? Like, because otherwise it's just an incident response, right? You start out with any evidence and you have to make a determination of where you're going to look and what you judge to be suspicious and not suspicious, right? And then you try to follow and build your own train of evidence. Now, imagine that you had probabilistic technologies that can help you judge that much faster. And it was back then already, right? Like apply your machine learning background to cybersecurity. Here's three communications on the network. Which one is most suspicious, right? That's the simplest form of that. Now, imagine you can keep a much, much larger context in a probabilistic fashion in an algorithm Right? doesn't even have to run on a quantum computer. Much larger um, context about what is happening on an enterprise. What are normal processes? Like what is a normal process on a Friday? Like where the backups run? I don't know, right? You are 
so much more mm-hmm. able to focus that cyber defender on here's an area where you should invest your time and here's an area where you sh- where you don't have to invest your time, right? So I, you could look at 50 million messages and you could identify the one most likely to be malevolent. And even if it isn't, at least you're looking in the right kinds of places. That's right. And Patrick, I think the point there too, with the quantum computer and quantum based probabilistic methods, it gets down to the point of, well, you don't have to pick the right answer. I just need you to narrow it down from 100 trillion to like 10,000. And at that point, I can yeah. take it from there. Then classical computing can can actually make a dent in it. Or my brain can, right? It's, it's Right. Yeah. Right. Because th- that's another very interesting thing that comes up every now and then, right? It's not an either or when we talk about quantum computing versus classical computing. Most likely, we will end up in like a fully hybrid world where you would kind of delegate a sub-problem of a larger problem to, let's say, a quantum program, but you will still apply. Like, I, even sure That's an is, example is the that. perfect example, yeah. right? You're not really solving the factorization on a quantum computer. You're solving the order-finding mm-hmm. problem, which is one part of the kind of bigger picture uh, there. It's all. Uh, but you mentioned also optimization, and, and that's where... Uh, I also find it very interesting that uh, we do a lot of talking about um, the, let's say, universal quantum computing or the gate-based or circuit-based quantum computing, but there's also a, let's say, very different approach, which is the adiabatic quantum computing, which does not kind of expect to, to be able to run any program, but it can run very well one particular type of program to solve one particular problem, which is optimization. And I'm just like thinking about the, let's say, the newly released uh, GPT models, right? With their hundreds of billions of parameters. And I'm thinking like, that's a serious optimization problem there to train such a model, right? What if we could get the capability of solving either that problem with a hundred bucks instead of 10 million bucks, right? or solve a problem that is a hundred billions time larger to create something like incomprehensibly more powerful with, with this. So even if you don't get to build like the universal quantum computer, uh, and I like your point also, Vince, about there's this kind of inspiration goes two ways, right? I mean, we're trying to port some stuff from classical into quantum, but quantum also inspires classical computation with new paradigms, which I find absolutely fascinating. I think it goes hand in hand with that evolution in the way we think about algorithms moving from an iterative to a probabilistic form of computation. And, you know, your point on specialization, I mean, it's like that that's the fundamental premise of mankind, right? There was a time that like you, you grew your own food and you, you know, made your own shoes. And then all of a sudden you had a cobbler and you had a farmer, right? Like, and the same has happened in computation. I mean, the old 80, 86 microprocessor did exactly everything and now you've got you've you know then we specialize yeah well but yeah. it started out with like simple fpus right floating point unit and then you had an integer unit and they uh, they were scheduled separately right and then you know now we have gpus and you know nobody i mean think about a piece of software have you ever bought a piece of software that has the database compiled right into it no of course not right you go and you buy your database from one guy and you buy your software from another guy and then your system integrator puts it together and you get to choose. And, and the quantum computer is just another form of specialization for a special class of problems. 
only this class of problems has really helped with the quantum computer. That's, a, you know, whether that becomes like a graphics card in your machine, that's a, that's a question we can debate for a bit, but, right, but, but, but think about the cloud, right? Like, so, you know, um, you know, two of us here have a background in machine learning, right? Like when I was doing machine learning, the cloud wasn't a thing, right? And what was the problem I always had? I needed a lot of CPU time for short periods of time to train the neural network. I needed a lot of data, but only for short amounts of time. And I couldn't really bring that together, right? So you necessarily weren't going to get a neural network that performed very well. Then the cloud became a possibility. I could get 10,000 cores for an hour that I needed them for. And then I, you know, running the neural network, but after it's been trained, I didn't take all that much CPU. It's fine, right? And so the cloud became a place where I could unlock a whole bunch of technologies that were pent up and waiting. And I think that a similar model, right? Like we see this with IBM right now and their, and their quantum computers, they're accessible through the cloud. Like I might very well have a computer program that offloads a particular problem to the cloud and then brings it back into a conventional binary computer in front of my face, right? And that's most likely the model we're going to initially see because, well, the quantum computers we're building today, they need big cryogenic machines to, to operate them in, right? Yeah. Well, I think my yeah, well. <laughs> material science is one of the places that I wish I knew more about what what we're going to do because as I've said before, I, sci-fi, the only difference between the humans and, and our sci-fi shows is material science, the ability to capture energy, the ability to have superconductors and, and things of that nature. Um, I think that mach- you know, AI, machine learning, material science, and security are the three things that are, that are going to be pushing this long term. And there's probably plenty of optimization problems and other things along the way, but I think those three will be the ones that bring the the lion's share of the funding, the lion's share of the startups, that kind of thing. Yeah, I would agree with that as well. And you have to think about sort of the the, the type of optimization problems that are the most monetarily rewarding. It, it isn't even uh, cracking your cryptography, right? Like imagine I, you know, if you look at the drug discovery um, space, you know, generating 600 million possible uh, proteins that um, could resolve a, you know, and bind to a specific uh, uh, position, right? Like there's no way to efficiently compute through that, right? And and the being able to do that better than others can yield phenomenal rewards for, for the pharmaceuticals, right? Like those are the areas where the rewards are the biggest that have the biggest initial uh, monetary gain that will probably be driving the kind of quantum computer we're going to see early on. Yeah. Because compared to what we might be able to do with a quantum computer, we're just stumbling in the dark trying things. It's like walking in the kitchen and taking f- five different ingredients, throwing them together, and see if it turns into a cake. Um, That's how I cook. Could be what really are you talking about? That could be very disgusting. Yes, we're, gonna, <laughs> we're only going to eat if we get together because we're both in New Hampshire. Uh, right. We're only going to eat at restaurants then. Now that you've disclosed that. <laughs> I... um, so, what problems is your company trying to solve specifically? Well, so that's, yeah, we haven't actually spoken, you know, and it's not just, you know, it's not just my company that's trying to solve them. I think this is a problem that it's a wider problem to solve, which is the problem that you and I just talked about earlier. It's that people seem to believe that we're going to get to a place where we're going to have a new post-quantum cryptographic world in which cryptography is just going to get updated and everything's going to be fine. And the point that, that you know, anytime I talk to anyone about it who, who starts to think about it, well, what do I hear, right? Like I hear things like, you know, okay, well, NIST is 
been releasing candidates for post-quantum cryptography. Can you, um, um, can you do those on my network? Yeah, I can do those on your network. Okay. But how can I trust them? So what do you mean? Well, one of them already got cracked. In fact, several of them already got cracked. Well, what do I do with that? I can't trust that. Right? And that's the problem that the yeah. industry is coming to terms with. And that's a problem that I think is a, <clears throat> you know, my call out to, to anyone who's willing to listen is, is that it's a, it's, a, it's a management problem. It's a policy problem. The problem is not finding the right encryption algorithm because the right encryption algorithm will never exist. And you know, the, the example for that one is, is very simple, right? Like RSA is based on integer factorization. Integer factorization is a mathematical technique that is easy to compute one way, hard to compute the other way. We've been trying to find an easy way to do it. And we've been trying to find an easy way to do it for over 2,000 years, right? And the, the example I tend to give there is Euclid of Alexandria wrote about the greatest common divisor method, right? How do you find, you know, the two right, uh, 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 greatest common divisor factors for an integer as, as, as far as 2,300 years ago? We haven't found a more efficient method, really. I mean, Peter Shor's method, yeah, for sure, but the quantum computer doesn't seem to materialize as fast as we all had hoped, right? So it's been a long time, a long time that we've been trying to find a more efficient way to, you know, break effectively RSA, right? But we look at all the techniques that post-quantum cryptography are based on. What you're seeing is most of these techniques are based on mathematics that are a decade old. They're straightforward to understand mathematics, which which is hopeful, right? But because it makes us mm. think about like, okay, well, if there's an easy way to reverse this problem, it should be evident to people. But in the world of mathematics, a hundred years is not very long, right? So yeah. So the the, the reality that I'm trying to get people to understand is that, yeah, there's going to be new cryptographic methods, and those new cryptographic methods are going to be good, and then they're going to fall. And we need to get to a place not where we can adopt a new cryptographic method, because me going around and say, hey, look, I'll sell you a piece of software that can you know, do Crystal Skyber for you, that's not all that wor- worthwhile. What, what I need to help you with is find out how as an industry we can move to a to a place where cryptography can continue to be evolved, right? Like replace cryptographic algorithms without being a major impact on the business operations. That's where we need to get to. Yeah. And and I think uh, to, just to be fair, the, the learning with errors that bases that undergirds crystals Kyber, which is the example you just gave is a great idea, but you, as you said, we don't have a lot of experience with it. And I think we're going to find that even if the algorithm is rock solid, it's the implementations that are going to be flawed. Sure. And, and that's and that's what you talked about with some of the others. It's how are the keys kept? Well, it doesn't matter if the algorithm's secure if the key is is uh, is accessible through some mechanism, some weakness. And so there's always going to be these these things. <clears throat> when we look at um, key uh, quantum key distribution. The devil's in the details. If you don't check the right things, if you don't secure the right things, it doesn't matter how secure it is, somebody's going to be able to penetrate that. And so we have to get better at the management. And it sounds like that's what you're trying to focus on is the management of these assets and the fungibility of these assets so that if Crystal's Kyber becomes untenable five years down the road, 10 years down the road, you can swap something else in. And I think I now understand the company name, uh, Quantum Exchange. Uh, <clears throat> And so that, that seems like a, a reasonable thing because we don't want to be in this situation again. It's like Y2K all over again. Uh, Q, Y2Q, I think is what you guys call it. Y2Q. What you young kids are calling it these days. Yeah, yeah. Y, Y2Q. Um, are you grouping me in with should, the young kids? Because that, that's going to uh, make me feel good. That's, 
Yeah, well, I think I'm the oldest one on the call, so I think I can get away with that. But <laughs> I remember, I remember the Gulf first Gulf War because I was there. Uh, so, um, but but I think we haven't learned the lesson because you know we making things more more and, and, and M1 tanks a great example. If you've followed the the, the war. Um, the, one of the things about the M1 tank is you could take the turret off, put another one in, and it's almost like a Lego system, uh, not made in Carlsbad, California though. And, um, we, we need to do the same thing with our, with our security, with our, yes. with our Crypto. Um, yeah. certificates. Yeah. 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 I, no, I, I, think, think, I, I think I get you, the point. That, and, and so it, that gets me to sort of like the, 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 the soapbox that I was on earlier, right? Like, and, um, what ends up happening, right? Is that <clears throat> enterprises. Uh, managed by policy and budget. It's a simple realization, right? Like when I'm a CISO or a CIO, I don't go around and I pick that product. No, what I what I do is I, I set minimum standards around risks that I'm willing to accept and costs that I'm willing to pay for that. And cryptography isn't managed that way. Actually, very much. Like we were joking about who compiles their databases in, right? That is what is happening with cryptography. We're compiling open SSL directly into our applications. And this is not just IoT. This is, you know, oh yeah, we're going to go to containerization. You know, I've been in product organizations all my life. And if we start, if we stop to understand how a piece of software really works, we stick it in a container and say, now it's self-contained. Yeah, hang on a second. It's still talking open SSL <laughs> version zero, six, nothing, right? Like there's, there's really a lot of old stuff out there. And if I as, as a as a CIO, someone says, look, you know, I'm not willing to accept that connection between here and Beijing simply based on whatever was compiled into that software. I'm kind of out of options, right? I, I, I don't have a control plane. I don't have a lever to say the minimum standard of cryptography I want or the minimum standard of risk that I want to mitigate is this, right? So the point I'm advocating for is you know, and this isn't even so much, you know, take cryptography out of the product like we do databases out of the product, although that is one way to go about it. But we need to, not as a company, right, not as a product vendor, we need to, as an industry, come to an agreement on how we can manage cryptography by policy, just like we manage so many other things in our security ecosystem by policy. I think you're calling for what I would call an e-bomb. So right now there's a big uh, hue and cry for an S-bomb a software bill of materials so that I know when log4j comes out, which of my components is affected by it because I know what they're all made of. And I think if we had an encryption bill of materials where I knew every kind of encryption that was used in each place, and that would force people to then realize this is a nightmare. We need to make this more modular. Yeah. I, I think, I think not only, not only that, what I'm saying is not just, uh, an encryption bill of material, but an encryption control plane because open up a Wireshark and then go in and see your, your TLS negotiations happening. If the client and the server can't agree on using AES-256 negotiated with an RSA, you know, 2048. They downgrade. They downgrade. And yeah. do you have any control Cell phones do the that? same thing. It, no. Exactly. Yeah, no, but like people, the encryption gets downgraded and then the communication yeah. starts to happen anyway because the client is always erring on the 
side of must communicate server side yeah. people don't really sit there and say oh i don't want that cipher i don't want that cipher and if they have to do it so, they have to do it in a yaml file that was the last time you enjoyed modifying a yaml file right <laughs> most people don't realize this but um the way the imsi catchers imsi catchers are these devices that are used to capture cell cell yeah. information it's ha- cell hacking which is highly illegal and I think the, the, the highest concentration of IMSI catchers in the world is in Washington, D.C., sure. for obvious reasons. <laughs> so with an IMSI catcher, what you do is you convince the device that you're a tower, and then you tell it, I can't talk on those higher protocols. Let's drop to 3G or 2G. And the, and the security is much lower, and it's been violated. And so now I can, you know, I can strip off all the security, and I'm the man in the middle with no security layers. And so that's exactly the same attack that we see in other places. So uh, that makes perfect sense. And so what I'm calling for is... That's horrifying. What what (laughs) if you had a policy-based control plane as a CISO that said, I don't want any of my clients or any of my servers or any of my VPNs to talk a cryptography lower than this standard. And by the way, if you carry the laptop to China, I want it to be this standard, right? Right. It seems like... So much in security is driven by a set of policies like that. And I think cryptography should follow suit. Security or a bust. Basically, I'd rather you not talk than have you talk in an insecure way. You need a minimum minimum policy standard and otherwise the connection can't happen. Cyprian, sorry. I've got a a perfect example for what you folks are talking about. This is very recent. Like two weeks ago, I was engaging with a CEO uh, on a discussion about uh, uh, an IoT and machine learning play. And at some point, we, we somehow drifted into more kind of philosophical things, and the topic of, of quantum came up. And uh, uh, he was like immediately very convinced, like, it's not a problem for us. We are waiting for NIST to publish the algorithms, and then we'll switch and we'll be good. So I challenge the person and say, so I understand then that you can actually produce a detailed list of every single place in your organization, software and hardware included, where you are using RSA, right? And he was like, yes, of course. He pulls in the CISO into the call. Like, this was like, like amazing. And was like, hey, Joe, or whatever his name was, like, uh, how much would it take us to, to create that list? And then there is like uh, about 15 seconds of radio silence. And he goes like, uh, maybe two years? It isn't happening. Exactly. <laughs> and that was optimistic. Yeah. That was optimistic. <laughs> and he was optimistic. Exactly. Uh, he was exactly. counting how long does it take me to find a new job just like it. That was what he was <laughs> Oh, yeah, I think I think that's right. And I think that, you know, I mean, I, I typically have a list of three things that I that I argue for that enterprises should start thinking about. But I, I think the, the basic right then I you know what people tend to say in 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 our industry is it's like, well, what we need is crypto agility. And it's like, well, then mm-hmm. you can say so I always say, so, you know, what, crypto agility is necessary, but it's not sufficient because the problem with crypto agility is it. It, it more or less assumes that you know when your crypto has been broken. And that is the one thing we don't know. Yeah. Hmm. Think about the Enigma yeah. machine. The Germans had no idea that the Enigma machine had been compromised. And they they were being eavesdropped on, but they never knew. Because once you're able to, to conduct effective espionage, you do not tell your adversary that you're doing it. 
I wonder if we'll, we'll start using things like QKD for just a small piece of it so that we can just get that anti-eavesdropping aspect of it. And then you also use quantum for the randomness generation so that you can get true random values. And those are the only parts of the encryption that 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 calls on that. And those could be cloud-based services. I think <clears throat> some kind of Franken encryption might be you know, where we finally end up to you know, where, where the cool kids will be talking about 30 years from now on a podcast after we're long retired, or at least I'm long retired. No, I think, um, I think your, your, your sense there is right. And I'll, I'll say, I'll say, I'll, I'll give you one more example to think about in, in that regard. Right. So, you know, and being in, in that crypto space, right, we do PQCs and QKDs and we do all of them, but the, you know, and, and custom tailored in any which way the customer wants because the customer usually doesn't quite know how they want. But the one, the one thing I always encourage people to think about is that you don't get in an airplane unless it has two engines and two different ways of measuring altitude, right? Like there's a lot of redundancy built in, right? You don't, you don't put your family photographs on a hard drive. You put them on three hard drives and then you create a rate array, yeah. right? Like we have, we have learned as engineers to build reliable systems out of un, you know, un, in, you know, dependable systems out of unreliable parts, right? Risk and management. It's a simple yeah. risk management equation, right? Like how many hard drives do I need to make my RAID array? Well, let's count, right? What I'm going In cryptography, we use one algorithm, RSA, one certificate on my hard drive, one password to predict that certificate, one software stack, OpenSSL. It's like any one of those things can have a flaw. I mean, it, maybe it's one in a thousand that there's a flaw in any one of those things, but you multiply that and it's like maybe a 10% chance, right? And so the point is, is that if you have a proper policy controlled cryptography environment, you might be able to say, look, the moment you carry that laptop to a, to a place that I don't trust, we require an RSA 2048 uh, certificate to be used um, with, a, with a TLS 1.3 negotiation and wrapped in a crystal skyber protected tunnel and we do we we mm -hmm. double up our software stacks we double up our our tunnels defense in depth defense in depth i mean it's so yeah. straightforward to think about right yeah we did that i was doing that in the infantry in the 80s so exactly. <laughs> I, I i can't help thinking about how you were mentioning about the redundancy in engines and in altitude measurement and the pitot-static tubes and stuff like that that's until one engineer silently decides that the system like MCAS would only read from one of them. Yeah. Well, that didn't work out all that well for a lot of people. and for the Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. Oh, you could lower the weight of the plane if one of the wings is just flat. You know, it doesn't have the camera. exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> only one engine. Well, it makes sense. It's it's engines are heavy. Well, well, we're getting kind of snarky here, and we're starting to run out of time. I think Is there we are. Anything else? Anything else you'd like to to bring up before we bring this to a close? It's been a great conversation so far. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. No, let me let me let me just leave you with the three points that I tend to tell the typical CISO they should start to think about today. So then we have a little bit of a close to the to the podcast here, and it's not just. Please. Uh, us having snarky comments about airplane manufacturers. Um, <laughs> so, so typically the, the three things I tell people, you know, who, who are starting to hear about the stuff that we just talked about is the very first thing you want to think about is, can you create some kind of person whose responsibility it is to know everything there is to know about crypto and the organization, right? Like, you know, we can call this a center of excellence, but usually it's just one guy that you, that you pick and say, geez, you know, you should know what there is to know about post-quantum cryptography, current-day cryptography, the flaws in, in earlier versions of TLS. Then number two, 
you know, charge that individual with figuring out if there's a, some kind of inventory to be made. You know, it doesn't have to be a comprehensive inventory, but get a good feel about what is being used, who is using it, what crypto you can control, what you can't control, right? You might not be able to control the endpoint, but you might be able to control the server, right? Like get a feel for that. I don't want to say it's a full crypto inventory, but to get a, a lay of the land, if you will. And then number three, start to think about sort of what would your processes be and your minimum standards around cryptography? And, and the context, what I mean here is, you know, essentially think about your risk. What would the company want if today, uh, this morning you wake up, you open up Slashdot and the first article you read is RSA has been broken. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you want the next steps to be in your company? How, what are you going to do? Are you going to raise the firewalls? Are you going to swap the certificate? What are you going to do? Right. People Start position think- and cry, I think, is the yeah, most yeah. common. Yeah, you curl up, right? And so, so the funny, the funny thing is, is that most CSOs will start to say, "It's like, well, the minimum risk I'm willing, the minimum mitigation period is X, right?" Like people already have ideas about that. Start writing some of those down, and I think that's yeah. starting to get people into position to deal with this. So that would be what. That's great advice. Yeah. That's that's with. really great advice. I, I, I think it's in track with where we are in the in the the zeitgeist right now. We need people to start thinking about problems before they happen. <clears throat> and if we didn't learn anything from the last three years, that should be the night, the key takeaway. I think. I agree with you. Well, it's been great talking to you. Uh, as always, great to see you, Cyprian, as well, or to talk to you at least. Um, and uh, we'll, I'm sure you, we'll see you again, Vince. But thank you very much for joining us. It was my pleasure to thank be you. here. Thank yeah. you. It's been a pleasure. Yep. Same here. Thanks, everybody. Goodbye.